Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network, powered by Clue, the podcast for product marketers and competitive professionals looking to give their companies a competitive advantage. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and today we had one heck of a guest. We had Chris Orlov join us, Ben. Why should people listen? Because anyone who listens to this podcast needs to know how to compete better and doing so by rigging deals in your favor. And that's what Chris has built a whole course around. It's what he's talked about based on his experience at Gong. It's really an interesting framework that you can easily apply. It's it's super clear. It's super obvious in some ways, but I think he really got to the meat of it all. And best of all, Adam, you know what we love the most. He shared really concrete examples from his real lifetime in the industry. It was a great, great episode. Story time. You know I love me some stories. Uh, yeah, the cool thing, I didn't even know, obviously, Chris, many listeners and, and folks on LinkedIn know him as a sales expert, which he is, and he shares a lot about what happened within competitive deals at Gong and other organizations. But Edgy also came from a product marketing background, so he sort of understands the plight, what, what makes a good product marketer, what makes uh, a not-so-good one, and and make some recommendations, the lessons he learned from a seller's perspective. And I, I think that really made for this to be that much better of an episode. And again, whoever listens to this, I think we'll have a wide range of listeners. What Chris shares is so applicable within competitive deals, which are more prevalent than ever before right now. So can't wait for everyone to listen to this. Without further ado, let's get into today's conversation with Chris Orlob. All right. Today, we are joined by a guest who needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyways. He is responsible for helping Gong grow from 200,000 to 200 million in revenue. He is the co-founder and CEO of Quota Signal, the former head of sales and go-to-market at Gong. It's Chris Orlop. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. This is going to be fun. This is a fun one. We were actually just talking before we recorded here. A lot of folks know you as an expert in the sales space, yeah. uh, but we talked beforehand that you actually kicked off in product marketing world, a little transition between sales and product marketing. I'd love for you to share a little bit about your journey in product marketing and sales at Gong. Yeah. Uh, so I started my career in SaaS sales, and then I became an entrepreneur who was building a sales tech company. And after I was done... With that chapter of my life, I joined Gong. The the tech company I tried to start, by the way, intended to be Gong, right? This was like 2015. The company was called Conversature. But we eventually joined forces with Gong, $178,000 in ARR. And I ran product marketing. Coincidentally, Gong asked me to take over product marketing. They offered me a job as senior director of product marketing because we were really good at marketing our previous business. And I was at a point in my life where I wanted to try my hand at this. I was very interested in marketing. I found that I was most fascinated um, in my previous business when I was working on marketing. And so my first two and a half years at Gong were doing product marketing and then building the product marketing function. And I did that for about two and a half years before um, I transitioned to uh, running one of the segments of our sales organization, which was what I did for three years after that, before I finally left. what did you learn about taking over product marketing in terms of how you support and work with the sales function? Now you've seen both sides of the coin. Well, one of the things I learned is that sales experience made me a formidable part product marketer. Right, because product marketing 
it's a strategic role. You're responsible for messaging and go-to-market strategy, but a lot of the stuff you do hits the street, right? It is stuff that salespeople end up using, competitive, uh, collateral, messaging, first call decks, that kind of stuff. And the way I think about sales and product marketing is like product marketing is persuading people on a one-to-many basis, right? You're putting messages out into the market and hoping to pull in a bunch of people. It is a lot easier to do persuasion on a one-to-many basis when you've done it on a one-to-one basis, far easier. And so there were certain things about product marketing that I was not good at, and that took me a long time to get up to speed on, but they were mostly the mechanics of the job. They were the fact that I've never worked as a product marketer before. How does that person interact cross-functionally? I didn't know all that stuff. I did know how to sell the living hell out of the technology we had. <laughs> and I used that and I embedded it in our product marketing efforts. And um, while I was weak in certain areas, I was strong in what I would consider the the areas that were particularly important. So then you go back into the sales role, which you, you're you in today. What do you look for in successful product marketers or product marketers that you see as an ally or an asset to to a seller? It depends on the stage of business, right? Like if I'm running a company that is either a startup or a growth stage business, my first like bullshit meter, can I say that on your podcast? You can, can say, say anything word? you want. My first bullshit meter for product marketing is like people who just want to play strategy, right? Because a lot of product marketers do that. A lot, And I have nothing against Ivy League. This isn't like a signal that they're a bad product marketer, but a lot of product marketers are like Stanford grads and other like, you know, Ivy League grads who think that building a growth company or a startup is about creating a SWOT analysis in the background. You're doing Porter's five forces or, or something like that. It's like, that's well, that's good. If you have a bunch of resources and you're not the hands of the business anymore, you're purely the brain. That's not going to be the case in a startup, a series A company, series B, series D. It's not going to be the case until the business levels off basically. And so one of the things that I look for if I was hiring a product marketer is like, yes, I want the strategic ability, strategic thinking, but can you get shit done? Because if you can't, then your giant brain is not worth much to the organization. It needs to translate into results. So you need hands and brain if you're going to be a really good product marketer. I love that. That's something we talk about a ton with folks here is like getting product marketing out of a messaging ivory tower and being willing to sit there on the field, in the field as much as possible. The other thing is like the best product market, product marketer, the term product marketing is almost an oxymoron because the word product is in it. And to me, the worst product marketers are the ones who are focused on how do you describe the product, uh, right? And the best product marketers are the ones who obsess about what it's like to be your customer and your buyer persona. What pain do they feel? What are their priorities? What are their hopes, dreams, and aspirations? What are the recurring conversations they have going on inside their head? What are the emotional patterns that they feel on a day-to-day basis? If you obsess over that and you happen to be a good writer and communicator, oh my God, you're going to be an amazing product marketer. If you don't do that and all you do is write product notes and product release language, it's like... Dude, do you, do you really think the CXO at the businesses that your salespeople sell to read that? No, they don't. 
it's useful in some ways. I'm not saying don't do it, but like if you are going to be a powerhouse product marketer, you've got to obsess with the customer in a way that is you've got to you've got to be able to peer into their soul. If I could put it that way, that's the best way I can say it. So we're going to get into, I, I love this kind of like starting off point because we're going to talk a lot about your experiences and advice from um, selling competitive deals, selling within competitive mm-hmm. deals from that sales lens. But I love this as well at the preface that a lot of the lessons, the things we're going to talk about today is incredibly applicable to a lot of our audience in this product marketing competitive enablement space. Um, before we actually dive right in as well, I should have mentioned this off the off the top here is you've also launched a course dedicated to exactly that competitive selling called Rig the Game. Yes, Can sir. you share a little bit about the course um, and give us your favorite your favorite section from that course? Yeah, so the course is like you said, it's called Rig the Game, and it is how to win your unfair share of competitive deals. And I'm very specific about unfair share. You should be greedy when it comes to winning competitive deals. And the course is broken up into three super sections. It And it's for sellers typically. It is how to rig the buying criteria in your favor, how to rig the buying process in your favor, and how to rig the buying committee in your favor. So there's criteria, there's process, and there's committee, or the blend of people who are buying your product. And there are... 10 to 12 techniques and tactics and competitive selling strategies that you can deploy within each one of those super things. So for example, the first one, uh, rigging the buying criteria in your favor, a lot of that has to do with the discovery that a sales rep does, right? And how they diagnose the problem. In other words, every problem that a seller is diagnosing with a buyer is going to have a set of root causes of the problem. And your product will address those root causes or it won't. Okay. And the key to rigging the buying criteria in your favor is to rig the perceived root cause of the problem in such a way that only your product can solve it. And so if you think about like, you know, everybody listening you probably have unique product capabilities that your competitors don't have. And they probably have unique capabilities that you don't have. And so when you're diagnosing the you know, higher order business problem and you ask, why do you think this is happening? Can you get them, the customer, to answer in such a way that they agree to having a root cause of your problem that only you can solve? Now, that's step one. You have to champion that perspective across the entire buying committee or committee. But that's a big part of it is, you know, you've got to lead the horse to water in believing that this solution is the only solution that's appropriate for you. And you do that through a very sophisticated form of diagnosing the problem. Can you give me, I w- I'd love to hear some some examples in action yeah. from, from your yeah. career of 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 this kind of setting up the leading the horse to water, so to speak. So I'll give you an example from P club. So I, I run two businesses right now. I got quota signal and then I've got P club.io P club.io for context. And then I'll get into the tactics is a set of online courses that are created by the top 0.001% of sales practitioners in the world. Okay, so I do courses and then I go find people who have proven wild success 
and they do a course with us on a specific subtopic. And then we sell all these courses to enterprises to help improve their sales team's skills. Now, who do we compete with? Because nobody else does that exactly. And so we compete with like a typical sales trainer. And so if I'm trying to rig the, the buying criteria in my favor and out of some typical sales training company's favor, I'm going to ask what the problem is. And they're probably going to say my reps are struggling with X and it's leading to dipped close rates. And when I start asking them, what do you think you need in a solution? They're going to start describing sales training. And now I'm going to start to rig it in my favor by saying, you know, one of the things that I've experienced is that most salespeople will not absorb sales training if they don't view the sales trainer as credible, right? And so most sales trainers are like that. Most sales trainers are career sales trainers and they haven't closed a deal for, for a while. To what extent do you think that's going to be the case with you? They're going to say big time, right? Like my, my reps are always skeptical of the people who are teaching them how to sell. And now when I present P Club for Business as we work with the top 1% of sales practitioners in the world, your reps will respect each and every one of these people in the course paths that they take, right? Jamal Reimer, he's closed $160 million worth of SaaS. I helped go wrong from 200,000 to 200 million. We've got all these practitioners that are going to teach your salespeople. What do you think is going to land more? That or some dude who's been teaching the same stodgy sales training for 25 years. Now, I've only started to weave my web here. I've, you know, people don't buy. It's not just one person. I've got to make sure a multitude of people agree with that. But that's my unique capability. And I ask a series of questions that starts to rig that in my favor. It's just kind of meta. You're using your credibility to build credibility here. <laughs> like <laughs> we're, we're getting a little inception on, yeah. on the on the selling front there. I'll give you a software example if you want. Yes, if you for want sure. One. So like I'll rewind the clock back to 2018. At the time, we were competing head to head with Chorus, right? It was Gong versus Chorus. And we had just released... The fact that we now capture and analyze emails in addition to calls. Course didn't do that at the time. They do now, but they, at the time, that was like our unique differentiator. And so if I was having a discovery call with a customer and they said, Hey, my biggest problem is ramping new reps, right? And like, I need either Gong or Chorus so that I can capture great sales calls and my reps can listen to those to get up to speed faster and ramp faster. What I would then do is say something like great. Uh, how long is your sales cycle? They're going to say six months. And I'm going to say, so today, if you wanted one of your new reps to shadow an entire sales cycle from first call to close deal, it's going to take them six months to get one of those under their belt. They're going to say, yep. And I'm going to say, I would also guess that there's a lot of interaction that happens between calls via email. Like what does the post-call summary look like? What does negotiating look like via email? There's probably some trigger points that happen via email that you would want to expose your new reps to so that they understand the entirety of a sales cycle, not just a few calls that happen. They're going to say, absolutely. Like we, we lose deals via email. And now I introduce my capabilities by saying, we're the only ones who capture the entirety of a sales cycle from first call to close every call and every email and every message so that your reps, your new reps can follow an entire sales cycle in a day not in six months. Now I just rigged that in my favor because now they're going to go talk to Chorus, again, circa 2018, and they're going to say, well, we talked to Gong 
and they let us shadow an entire sales cycle, including email. And all you guys do is capture calls. Yeah, that's valuable, but like, I want my reps up to speed on what the entirety of a sales cycle looks like. Now they're now chorus is selling up a hill. Right? Um, and, and if I planted that seed with a powerful person and they're having a conversation internally and they keep saying, gong captures everything, gong captures everything, gong captures everything. Doesn't matter that chorus is 30% cheaper than me at that point. They're not going to solve the totality of the problem. What I love there is you don't leave with the feature for one. <laughs> I, I, a second, a, a follow-up question to that, that is actually kind of relevant to something. We just did some research with revenue leaders and nearly half are noticing that or stated that their sellers are only noticing competitor presence about 50% of the sellers are noticing competitor presence at like negotiation stage or later now in the context of in the context of you at Gong are you like are you selling with course in mind immediately even if you don't know they're implicitly in the deal yes because if you take your first competitive action late in the deal, you're too late. The The decision criteria is already solidified. The shots you could have taken are already shot, right? Competitive selling is, is kind of like crafting a vase out of clay, right? When you put a wet slab of clay on whatever the hell they call those things where you make clay on, you have the opportunity to form it because it's wet, right? That's what the first half of a sales cycle is. Now, once you stop farming it and you let it dry, you're not going to be able to shape shift that thing anymore. It's a vase now. And selling isn't that rigid, but it's pretty close to it. Where like the things you do during the first half of your sales cycle, the way you frame the pain, the way you diagnose the problem, uh, the champions you build, the blend of people you work, that has a way of crystallizing and dragging itself into the second half of the sales cycle. Right. So like winning, and I talk about this, not just in competitive deals, but in negotiation, you want to know the best way to, to make a negotiation go smoothly, run a really crisp first half of the sales cycle. So that negotiation is like a foregone conclusion. If you rigged the deal in your favor at the beginning of the sales cycle and the economic buyer agrees with it and your champion agrees with it, and then procurement comes in at the end and they're like, Hey, your competitor offers 50% of what you're offering, I need you to come down to that. Well, now you can say, wait wait a second, there are two unique capabilities that we offer that your CRO agreed she needs, and so did your VP of sales. So, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would say it more tactfully than that. (laughs) But the things I did months ago are paying dividends today now. Instead of me going, oh, no, 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 we'll give you 40% off. I can't do 50. I'll give you 40% off if you sign right now. It gives you the like to stand on. Yes. Yeah, you got to set the base in your favor. Maybe I should have called the course out. <laughs> Rig the set game the... almost sounds like ominous, but I kind of like it. <laughs> Multi-clay thing in your favor. <laughs> Multi-clay. <laughs> I think that what you mentioned there, especially when you get to that procurement piece around, well, competitor X over here is offering 40% less. I think in the context of the economic environment we're in right now, that is becoming more and more prevalent in sales cycles. It's this race to the bottom. There's a a need to bring in new business or retain business, and that can cause when businesses are strapped or stretched, 
to immediately go to that sort of discounting technique. What are some of the ways that you can, that the sellers should be approaching not having to get into that race to the bottom against it's a competitor? It's the same answer, right? Like if, if it's a new spend, if your customer, if your potential buyer, this is like a new logo acquisition and they're like, Hey, we want to move forward with your competitor because they're cheaper. Well, the conversation, first of all, this should have been dealt with long before here, but the conversation is like, you are spending money to solve a problem. It's the only reason you're going to spend money or to capitalize on an opportunity. If you believe this competitor can do exactly what we do for half the price, then you should move forward with them. If they don't do everything we do in a way that solves your problem, like in that context, then who cares if they're cheaper? They're not going to solve the problem. And that again comes back to like, how did you diagnose and frame the problem with your customer early? Because if you, if you get to the end of the sales cycle and then they're and they're like, no, I, I agree. Uh, you know, they have some limitations that won't solve the whole problem. Then you should just be like, then don't fucking buy the, anything. <laughs> Say it. You should probably bleep that out. <laughs> but just save your cash unless you think this is going to solve your problem, then move forward with us. But it's clear that because of your the root causes of your problem, if you did this well, th this is the only choice. You either totally solve the problem by paying full price with us, or you let that problem burn and you save your cash. There's, there shouldn't be an end between. The way the market looks today is not how it was yesterday. And spoiler alert, it'll be different tomorrow too. Hi, I'm Devin O'Rourke, founder and managing partner at Fluvio and the host of the Embracing Erosion podcast. On my show, we talk to product marketers, founders, investors, and go-to-market leaders to shine a light on what it takes to tackle difficult go-to-market challenges. How do you make decisions with speed and effectiveness? What makes for a great leader? And what are the most common go-to-market mistakes and how can you avoid them? Embracing erosion means embracing change. And you'll hear from some of the best in the business who know firsthand why embracing erosion is key to success. Join me, Devin O'Rourke, on the Embracing Erosion podcast, powered by the Compete Network. When, in that, in that example you mentioned earlier from the gong chorus of it all and being the need to be proactive, how do you, when you are leading a set, the sales team there, how are you kind of setting your reps up to be proactive there? Are there sort of plays? Are there specifics? Are you looking, is it, for example, the the, the email feature gets dropped and we're going to do a lot of enablement coaching, like this is the thing we're yeah. going to hammer in? Like, how does that look? What, well, it's, it's first of all, making sure your reps are crystal clear on your unique differentiators. And that's step one, but it's not enough because if, that, if that's all you do, all they're going to do is rattle off features to your customers. Then it's tactically teaching them and training them. How do you ask questions and diagnose the problem in a way that gets the customer to value that unique capability? Now, the next thing we did is like winning a competitive deal is not just about rigging the buying criteria in your favor, which is what we've been talking about. It's also about rigging the buying process in your favor and the buying committee in your and so the buying process part, we would teach our reps to add or remove steps in the sales cycle, depending on who we were selling against. So I'll give you an example. Again, Chorus was our chief competitor. 
if you analyzed the strengths and weaknesses of of those two companies, which everybody listening should do in their own competitive context, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your competitor strengths and what are their weaknesses? It will tell you what kind of sales process you want to run. So an example here is, let's again, go back to 2018. Chorus, one of their strengths is they had a better Salesforce integration than us. And they were also cheaper than us. Okay. Those are their two strengths. One of our strengths is we had email, like I mentioned, and we had an interface that reps loved and used a lot more than Chorus. Okay. So if those two two things are true, what am I going to recommend to the customer about how they evaluate this? Well, if I'm Gong, I'm going to recommend a pilot because the reps are going to use it and I'm going to be able to showcase the usage stats and mine are going to look a lot better than Chorus's because we have that advantage. And I'm going to recommend that we turn on email during the pilot so that they can see we have it and they don't, which is another advantage. And I'm going to do a usage review at the end of the pilot to, like I said, showcase, like, here's how your reps are using this. Now, if I'm Chorus, what I'm, what am I going to do to Gong? It, like, let, let's say I'm Chorus trying to compete in 2018 with Gong in that exact same context. Well, my strengths, once again, are I'm cheaper. And I've got a better Salesforce integration. So if Gong is going to do a pilot, I'm going to push the customer and say, make sure you ask them to turn on their Salesforce integration. And by the way, we should do a review at the end of the pilot uh, that shows how your call data maps to Salesforce, because now I'm highlighting my strengths. And the other thing I'm going to do is proactively recommend that they get procurement involved in the buying process, because I'm cheaper. If procurement's grinding everybody down on price, I'm the cheaper one, so I'm going to win that argument. So the point of that is every competitive sales setting has two competitors. One competitor has strengths and weaknesses. The other competitor also has strengths and weaknesses. Once you get clear on what those look like, you should then design your sales process to take advantage of your strengths, mitigate your weaknesses, mitigate your competitor's strengths and expose their weaknesses. So on that note, I want to, again, thinking about a lot of the audience here in enablement, product marketing, compete, I'd I'd love to get your perspective on, Did you, is there a time, maybe it's a gong example, maybe it's another where you as a seller or leading a sales team were utilizing the full team to tip one of these neck and neck tight deals as well, whether it be product marketing, enablement, or or a a team like that? I mean, we certainly used deal teams. Uh, It wasn't usually product marketing or enablement unless on the customer side, those two buyer personas were interested in this deal happening, in which case we would get our head of product marketing to talk to theirs so that they could explain as a product marketer, here's how you get value out of Gong. And our sales enablement person, you know, our head of sales enablement would do the same. They would align with the head of enablement for the customer. They would say, oh, you have an onboarding challenge. Here's how we use Gong. And here's how our other customers use Gong and onboarding in their enablement efforts. So in that sense, we used them on the deal team. It wasn't super common. I mean, it would happen a few times every quarter, especially at the end of the quarter. Um, Those roles, enablement and product marketing, are more so setting the strategy behind the scenes and helping with that. 
right? Product marketing, they should be working very closely with the VP of sales on some of the things I mentioned. Here's the unique differentiators. How do we embed this into our sales process? How do we coach our reps to take advantage of this? How do we recommend adding or removing certain steps from our sales process that highlight these and mitigate our weaknesses, right? That strengths and weaknesses exercise that I recommended, it's probably something product marketing should take the lead on and proactively go to their head of sales and say, here's the landscape. Let's talk about how we embed this into our sales process to win. I love that. I love that frame. And again, it's kind of ties back to your first point around sort of don't you have to be, especially if you're in a growth stage, a lot of our listeners are going to be in that kind of growth stage series, A, B, C, D on the alphabet. Um, but being able to actually get shit done as well, put this into application. And you mentioned there, you got to be tight with your VP of sales, director of sales yes. to make sure that the research you're doing, the work that you're doing is actually getting put into action on the field itself. You know, that, that leads me to answering one of the first questions you asked me um, with more clarity, right? Like, what do you look for in a product marketer? Another thing I would look for is somebody who has a track record of working cross-functionally. Uh, right? the, the worst product marketers, and they might be very talented people, but they're the people who work in a silo. They work in isolation, and that doesn't work in product marketing. Product marketing is arguably the most cross-functional role in a business because your job is essentially a strategist who serves... Uh, the customer facing organization and works with product management to do that, right? Product management, they don't know how to sell and market, but they know the product, you know, the product and you know, at least conceptually how to sell and market and bring it to market. And so as a product market marketer, you better be working very closely with product management, with head of sales, with demand generation, with customer success, with anybody who has any sort of responsibility for customer facing success pre and post sale. That's such a good call. I want to, I did this episode at the top of the question list, but I want to get to it at the end here. We've, with, uh, with your course, Rig the Game, there's a lot of tactics and techniques. Could you share two to three actionable takeaways or tips for sellers that are in competitive deals today? Well, the, those first couple are probably the top ones, right? Like rig the buying criteria in your favor, rig the buying process in your favor in the way that I described. Um, I'll give you a couple more. One is to take advantage of the weakness within your competitor's strength. So I'll say that again because it's easy to misunderstand, right? You're giving me a confused look. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying take advantage of your competitor's weakness, at least you know, we've already talked about how to do that. I'm saying every strength has an inherent weakness. It's like, I call this competitive selling judo. Judo, right? I'm not a martial artist. I think that's what it's called anyway. So I'll give you an example and then I'll, you know, bring this down to earth. I, McDonald's and Burger King were comp competing viciously in the 1980s, right? It was the Burger Wars and McDonald's was the juggernaut. They were winning. And so Burger King was trying to figure out how they were going to increase market share. And what they didn't do is think, what's McDonald's weakness and how do we exploit it? The reason they didn't do that is because McDonald's is going to fix it as soon as Burger King starts taking advantage of it. It's going to be short-lived. Instead, they go, what's McDonald's strengths? And they go, well, they have the play place. They have Ronald McDonald. They have um, Happy Meals. They have toys. Their strength is children. 
Okay, what's the weakness within that? Adults that don't have kids. And so they then positioned Burger King as this is the place you go if you want an adult burger. If you want a little kid burger, go over to McDonald's. Now, McDonald's isn't going to refute that. They're not going to go, no, 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 no. We, we have adult burgers, all while customers are looking at Ronald McDonald and the play place and all the toys and all that stuff going, mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> sure you do. And they work at, then they look at Burger King's Whopper that's like dripping with grease and, and <laughs> one stuff that appealed to adults, at least for that market segment. And so as sellers, uh, you can do the same thing. What's your sellers and product marketers? What's your competitor's strength and or set of strengths? And is there a weakness inherent in those strengths that you can take advantage of? I'll give you one example that's more like B2B software oriented. Um, back in the early days of Gong and Chorus again, uh, the strength that Chorus would tout is they would say, we are the AI company, right? Like whether that's true or not, that's what they were claiming, right? We are advanced technologists. We're an AI company first. Uh-huh. Okay, so what we ended up going to market with in our sales conversations is we would say, yep, they're an AI company and that's the problem. Go compare, go use both of the tools and you tell me which one respects how a salesperson works better, right? Because we're not an AI company. We are a sales company who understands salespeople and we happen to make AI. And so our products are used better by salespeople because they're made by salespeople. And that resonated, right? And now Chorus isn't going to go, no, wait a minute. We're salespeople who make AI because they've been claiming for years that they're an AI first company. And we had customers tell us like, why'd you choose Gong? They would go, well, it was clear that Chorus was more interested in AI than they were in creating a product that salespeople use well. It feels like Gong is a group of sales professionals who have some AI people on staff because you need that, but the product just works so much better in our workflow. That works really well. It's almost, what resonates is it almost traps them in their own words. I think one of yes. the biggest things that we see- Judo. It's judo. It's martial arts. Look at that. Um, what what we see often is like one of the worst ways or the best ways, however you look at it, to lose trust in a competitive deal is to say something incorrect, wrong, or outdated about your competitor. Totally. Yeah. But- if you're leaning to the thing that they're saying on that sales call that you know they're going to be touting on that first demo, even on the messaging on the website, you've already built that trust, right? Nah, you're look. you're validated. You're you're not running the risk of saying something that's completely out of left field too, and you're trapping them into their value props already. Yeah, and they're going to take that trap, right? Like they probably know if you're leveraging just their weaknesses, they know what traps you're going to set, and they're going to avoid them. They're not going to avoid th- this trap. Because it's their strength. That's, I love that one. I've, I've, I've actually never heard that one. Using finding the weakness within their strength. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that example. I know we're we're coming up on time here. Um, are you ready for producer Ben's favorite segment before we get off? I'm scared, but yes, let's do it. It's called the lightning round, and oh, no. preface for all listeners, <laughs> as they know and as I know, is I don't look at these questions until we're right on the call. So if you have any complaints, if we say anything that offends you, direct all complaints to producer Ben at producerben at clue.com. <laughs> all right, let's get into this. We got three for you here. First one, you recently tweeted that the world needs more non-tech entrepreneurs. Give us a name of one non-tech entrepreneur that you admire. 
Wayne Huizenga. He's no longer with us. Um, he passed away, I think, 10 years ago. He is one of the, I think he's the only person on the planet to co-found three Fortune 500 companies. So he, in his mid-20s, he started Waste Management Inc., which became a juggernaut. And it was just him. He would haul trash. It was a trash hauling business from midnight uh, or no, sorry, from 2 a.m. until noon. He would come home, take a shower, don his suit and then go sell. And he would he did this for 20 hours a day. He built that into a Fortune 500, retired at age 48 for two months, co-founded Blockbuster and built it into a juggernaut, sold it to, I think, Viacom and then co-founded AutoNation. So uh, trash hauling business, video rental business, car dealerships, all three of which became Fortune 500. Co I mean, this guy was in no college education, nothing like that. So those stories, I'm so steeped in Silicon Valley that I kind of get tired of all of the venture capital and the, the tech. Like the world needs more Wayne Heisengas. We don't need more... 600th SaaS company in the same category. <laughs> What's the last thing you use ChatGPT for? What did I do? I didn't, I don't use it a lot. Uh, oh, I, uh, I asked it for a recommendation on toasters, not because I was buying a toaster, but I wanted to see if it recommended specific products, which would tell me that it's probably going to become a marketing channel, right? If chat GPT gets to the point where it's not just giving generic advice, but like links to specific products are there. Now there's like a whole new marketing channel called chat GPT optimization or optimization, similar to SEO. Now that doesn't exist yet, but I was just curious and it did recommend specific products. It didn't link to them, but I'm like, hmm, marketers are going to have to contend with this at some point, I would imagine. Interesting. I wonder if that becomes a pay to play, like a Google ads spot yeah. for Last one here. Give us your elevator pitch for the great state of Utah. <laughs> oh my God. Elevator pitch for the great state of Utah. Uh, Salt Lake City proper is amazing. It's very eclectic. Uh, great outdoors, great food. Um, the rest of the state, I don't care for so much. That's the sales pitch. That's the yeah. sales pitch. Chris, this was awesome. I appreciate you taking the time. And I think our listeners are going to love this unique perspective. Where can folks reach you? Uh, LinkedIn is good. You know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or check out pclub.io. That's where, you know, all of our courses from the top 1% of sales practitioners live. And yeah, those two places. Thank you so much, Chris. And we'll catch everyone next week. Two, three, four.